I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole. Now live. Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. On the Para-X Radio Network. This is Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, and I am here with my most excellent co-host, Jason. And tonight we have a special guest, one that I've been reading his blog. That's right, tonight we have a blogger who not has not published a book because he doesn't want to. And that blogger is known to many occultists from both sides of the pond. And with that, I'm going to welcome Mr. White, Mr. Gordon White, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. And yourself? I'm doing pretty well. It's a, pr- it's a pretty nice night out. Yeah, good one. It is here, too. It's just a little bit later. Just a lot later in, yeah. the, <laughs> in the UK. So, hey, Gordon was really awesome to uh, come out and... It's 1 a.m. where he's at right now. Yeah, 1 a.m. Uh, but at least it's quiet. Yeah, it's quiet. You don't have any screaming fire engines or police cars or anything like that. So it's, no, it's a good that would night. be my neighborhood. That would yeah. be your neighborhood on most <laughs> nights. So that would be, in fact, that would be Jason's neighborhood. So there we go. Uh, I, I love your blog, Gordon. Uh, the Rune Soup. Thank you very much. Um, uh, And I think there's a lot of magicians out there who are chaos magicians and uh, maybe maybe not so much the left-hand path magicians, but a lot of 
uh, practical magicians who also love your blog because there's a lot of practical information both on using sigil magic in different ways even different uh, different ways than I covered in in my book and even how to integrate it with your career and a lot of different notions on the nature of where we're going as as media producers as people who produce things for people to read or uh, to uh, consume as, as it were um, and you had you have a, expressed a lot of interesting ideas on the blog about ebooks and stuff like that and I hope we could talk about all that tonight for sure for sure so I think one of the most fascinating things because I, I want to kick myself for not thinking of it myself is the shoaling technique of, of, of sigil magic that you actually came up with that's br absolutely brilliant and maybe you could describe to us the technique and the listeners the technique so we can be illuminated um, okay, sure. Um, the words, uh, I mean, I, I came up with, um, I guess, the, the name for Shoaling, um, but uh, at, at its essence, it's essentially breaking what is the more traditional, um, I need, we'll use as a hypothetical, uh, if someone needs a new job, a, um, a new job spell, a single target, a, a single enchantment, off you go, see what happens, and, and kind of splitting that in a uh, into smaller goals, uh, smaller, well, I guess you have, uh, if you break it into smaller goals that have an increased probability of going your way, and you say do five of them rather than an individual one which may have maybe has a lower probability, you do that and suddenly you have essentially five magical targets where once before there was one. And I just, having, I guess largely because I think a lot of magic uh, falls down at the very first stage as, as, as to what people pick as their target. Uh, when I was playing around with it, I said, well, now I've got five targets, whereas before I had one. Why don't I just try uh, activating um, all five of these sigils at once? And, um, and then threw in a few extra ones for good measure, because, you know, if I've got out, if all the candles and the incense and everything are out, I might as well throw a few things in there. I can always find other things I want, uh, and just to kind of uh, have, have, a, have a play with it. And, um, and it kind of... A, it kind of evolved from there, I suppose, because as the results started to come in, a few things happened. Um, uh, well, uh, the the overall efficacy of uh, my practical enchantment improved, but you all, I also had them kind of combining in odd ways, things that potentially wouldn't have otherwise gone together. Um, so if there was, in this hypothetical job search, um, a few steps uh, in terms of getting callbacks and interviews, but then there are other things about um, getting a new haircut or a free a free um, train trip to Bristol or whatever that has nothing to do with with work, but they were just things that I was after. They would they would come in as results in some odd way um, intertwined. So something was something was essentially up there, uh, and I, it it just then became a couple of years of of I guess pushing on that half open door uh, to see what would happen. Uh, and then led to the developments like Robofish, which I think um, is is one of the things that has definitely kicked it up to the next level. That was the, the the final piece to enchant for something that already exists or that you already have, and kind of throw it into the middle of a mix of things that you're after. And if you selected the targets properly, so that you have a low enough or rather a high enough probability of them going your way, then that definitely jumps up your your overall success rate. And I guess you just kind of you pull them all together and. Uh, and yeah, if you have a sigil system. Well, I think we should just real fast remind our listeners, even though we had shows on sigil magic, 
A sigil is just simply a visual, or you can use a mantra uh, method, an alternative method of encapsulating your desire into an alternative form for enchantment. Uh, that's the simplest way to say it, but essentially, what was that? That's definitely good, and it's a good point. And when I say it, I, I obviously mean the kind of uh, post-Sperian uh, chaos version of it, and that is because, well, I'll be honest, I'm lazy. Uh, I'm either lazy or I'm busy, and uh, and I, I can I, I seem to have worked out a way of getting the maximum uh, magical results that works for me with the minimal amount of effort. So that's a pretty good ratio. Well, heck, that should be everyone's goal. Yeah. <laughs> well, everyone else who's lazy like me. I'm lazy. I'm lazy like that. All right. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of a brilliant idea. The mix to mix um, sigils that you already that already are done that you already have stuff for with things that you don't have yet to truly kind of confuse. Uh, and Whatever it is that gets in the way, I know. I yeah. I stumble over that as well, which is why, I mean, because we're all here, magic clearly works, and I know this is a very PJ thing to, uh, PJC thing to say, but it's weirder to me that it doesn't work all the time, uh, and, so, and that's the thing that, with the RoboFish, I've been trying to get around, and my original hypothesis was, um, uh, I, one of the things I, I find most frustrating with sigils, and this is potentially the next thing to solve, is I can't make them work fast. Uh, I there's sort of a which it, in some ways is good because I know say for instance Jason Miller uh, is is kind of anti-emergency magic which makes complete sense to me um, but I can't get I cannot um, fire off some sigils one night and have the results the next day it's pretty much a two-week delivery uh, and and I'm I'm trying to I was trying to work out ways to to short circuit that so the first few Robofish were enchanting for things that I knew I was going to have for dinner that night because I was cooking them so it kind of shrunk the time frame down for six hours. It did nothing to, to change the delivery <laughs> the delivery time from two weeks, but then suddenly it improved the efficacy of it. Now, I've been able to... I, I know Jason's uh, is anti-emergency magic, although I, I'm actually, like, pretty good at that particular magic to get sigils to work fast. But it has to be a real kind of need. Otherwise, yeah, two weeks or so... It just for me, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I two weeks that was just me being glib, but um, I don't. I, I can't get it to. I can't. I can't get it to shorten. If I need something sort of um, turned around faster, um, sigil magic isn't the thing I go to. Um, so I'd be interested. It's interesting that you can. I thought that that was something that might just be, and whether it's because um, if something is close, uh, it's it doesn't manage to kind of sink further into your um, semi-conscious part of the mind or whatever it happens to be. If something's closer to you in time, um, but I yeah I can't get it to work. So it, well, it depends. Usually, like the things that I'm enchanting for that I usually need uh, right then and there are smaller. So. Like, it's like something, um, it's not like a job spell or something like that. It would, I was probably using this kind of technique internally, but I didn't name it. Sure. But I would cast for much smaller things. So it'd be like, okay, so yes, I need, say, I blew my wad at the casino. Damn, it sucks. So I need money for this. And I could kind of get that amount of money that I needed to get by for the next few days. 
and then do other enchantments to make it go right for the rest of the month. Kind of so it was like very small things that I could that were more need based in a way that were part of a greater plan to fix whatever issue caused them need for emergency magic in the first place. I see. I see. <clears throat> so it's kind of like I had a plan so I wouldn't repeat that problem of emergency magic again when I went into casting the sigils for the emergency magic. I think in my book I was talking about one case where I had to pass emissions with a Honda that should not have passed because I had an illegal emissions system on it. Mm-hmm. And the guy just passed me. Nice. Right? And that was kind of an emergency sigil, and I really shouldn't have passed. But um, that's just how it is. I mean, I needed to get it. A- that, that's specifically how it is with sigil magic. Uh, I think it is very good at, um, dare I say, superficial targets. Uh, it, it seems to have that kind of uh, almost 90s chaos um, attitude about itself that it will do things like that that are uh, essentially pointless you're not trying to cure cancer there you're just trying to uh, get your car back on the road and uh, and sigil seem to work for that kind of um, almost silliness yeah I mean they're like trivialities of life in a way um, the you lost the your stuff. yeah the good stuff you lost your luggage uh, I've had that happen and be like nope I didn't lose my luggage here you go <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Uh, stuff like that. Um, now that said, I have made more complex sigils that, and you talked about this in your blog as well. Some cases where you're using, uh, where you put the sigils up, and you're kind of, um, you have them around at all times on a mirror or something like that. I have used those sigils for more complicated kind of results that take longer. Okay. Um, I again, this is potentially one of my failings, but I can't. Um, I can. I do very good stuff with sigils when I do very specific things with them. If I try to get things to happen faster, or if I try to do, try to involve um, something more complex than a very simple sentence in the sigils, then I um, my effectiveness is reduced. Um, so I like. I have four sigils up on my. I'm looking at it now on my mirror, um, and I genuinely don't remember what two of them are for because they've been there for like four weeks and I sort of just take them down when I go I have no idea what this is for anymore uh, I assume that helps but in the background it's got this sort of low attention processing and of course mirrors are that kind of um, weird space in, yeah, a, yeah. in a room so uh, it's kind of yeah sitting up right there on the fringe of reality if you will um, on the I, edge I, of the world the mirror yeah. Especially, and it's uh, it's good to have it in this room because this is a small room. So you have to see them. Yeah, you do. You like we. I can see them from bed when I wake up, but it, it's not the first thing I see. It's it's just off to the side. But um, um, yeah, and that that also seems to have helped. That kind of keeping them around, low attention processing. Um, I think the idea of of destroying them was just because usually. Uh, Usually a magic ritual, like a story, has a beginning, middle, and end, uh, and you kind of throw the candles out or bury them or, or whatever you do with them at the end of it. But at the end of um, sigilizing something, you're still left with a physical object, and I think it was this kind of need to draw a line under the ritual that, that led, to, um, led to them being destroyed. Because uh, prior to, say, um, well, Austin Osmond Spare, um, when people would use glyphs in magic, which we've been doing for 30,000 years, 
no one's no, no one's rubbing them off the walls of the caves in France uh, immediately afterwards. They're they're just sort of still there. So um, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that there's now, uh, I guess, robust opinions on both sides of whether to destroy them or not. Because um, yeah. I've had I've had it actually work both ways. Both ways gotten results from Jason. How about you? You know, I'd have to say definitely, and I've also done, since he brought up mirrors, I've done interesting things with mirrors before where I've actually drawn a sigil or request backwards on the mirror. So, okay, here's where it gets weird. In the mirror world, it would be facing outward the correct way. Hmm. There's just a little uh, paradigm shift for you. But yeah, I've, I've done it several different ways. And gotten results. It does. Uh, one of the, I guess, when we first moved to London four and a half years ago, and um, you know, Lehman Brothers had just collapsed. Uh, this was not the. This is actually the worst time in the history of money to show up in London. Uh, and one of the better, uh, I guess, emergency enchantments involved throwing sigils in the Thames River. Uh, in Hammersmith, uh, obviously job-seeking ones, and then we ended up because uh, we lived in North London at the time, and then moved to Bristol, and then came back. I ended up living within walking distance of where this um, kind of intuitive sigil destruction happened, and I, I lived within walking distance of um, where that happened because my job was w within walking distance of where that happened. So it's it's um, I. I would say my default opinion is to not immediately destroy them, but you kind of know as as the ritual sort of bubbles up in your head about what you're going to do, um, where these things need to go. I, I would agree with that. I mean, it, it, it does make sense. I mean, you know, God uh, forbid, you know, that I would do something aggressive, you know, <laughs> you know uh, more often than not, the, the uh, sigils seem to end up in a graveyard or something, you know. Oh yeah, um, that was. Uh, <laughs> I I didn't. Yeah, uh, there was a really fun um, Australia. Obviously, not being that old, uh, at university when I lived on the North Shore, there was a um, a graveyard across from a church and a pub at like a crossroads, which oh. was a few minutes from my house. And I'm like, sold. This is where everything is going. Yep, that's uh, it. That's yeah. it. Do you do? <laughs> So, so you do the ritual, you go to the cemetery, and then you go to the pub. It doesn't Everybody get any wins. above. It's Everyone wins. Well, there's a way to forget what you just did, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a few shots later, all good. All good. Uh, what I found interesting is that um, you, in the blog, you apply a lot of these techniques, like shoaling and, and the... I would consider more advanced sigil uh, sigil workings in relation to your career and in in a regular basis, and and, and that's something that a lot of people uh, kind of get scared of or get timid about. Yeah, they do. Uh, that I guess is is human nature because we're um, the way our kind of monkey minds uh, view loss and gain is that we're more scared of losing what we have than. Um, actually going after potentially more, even if the probability is in our favor that we would get more rather than losing. So um, it, it, led, it um, leads to very surreal situations where people would prefer to keep uh, a job that they're in where they're paid more than everyone around them rather than go to a new job where they're paid $10,000 more. But 
everyone else makes more than them. So we don't, especially in the workplace, we don't understand loss and and the potential for gain because it freaks us out. What if we mess with this and get fired? <laughs> what if something goes completely wrong and you uh, enchant for a promotion and then you don't get the job or you get a job that then gets made redundant or, or whatever. So I think people, and it, this is the trouble when there's um, when we're in such serious economic disruption, that people get quite conservative about what their options actually are. And, uh, and so they tend to um, just sort of stick with either a job they're unhappy with or bite their tongue when they know they should be asking or pushing for the pay rise or, or better than the pay rise because pay rise is pointless um, for extra training and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that, I think, yeah, I, I think a lot of people, I don't think that's a lack of, um, I would say, what's the word, uh, a lack of magical technological sophistication. I think that's because people are scared in the workplace so they don't want to rock any sort of cosmic boats. No, especially in today's economy. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I'll admit, my last career change, it, it was a scary time to be in because I knew I had security. And to change meant that I would lose that security and have to make it through another trial. I mean, what if the new job fires you within a 90-day trial period? Then what? You have nothing to go back to. So, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I do know. I mean, I've been made redundant twice since uh, these things happened. So that's, I think, where... I, I sort of have um, a you know what fuck it attitude, <laughs> because, <laughs> like it keeps happening to me. So I might as well where, where where what have I got to lose? I'm also in a as people frequently point out in the comments. Um, I don't have kids uh, or you know a mortgage because I you know I wouldn't get a mortgage uh, certainly not in London. Um, so I, I'm I'm kind of in a in a more freewheeling situation. I mean I don't there's no. <laughs> If I get fired, I still run out of money like everyone else, but um, I don't. Yeah. Kind of, oh my God, there are kids in school that need food and clothing and all these other damn things and they won't shut up. Yeah, no, no, no. Having kids and recently gotten redundant, uh, although I got another job within before my unemployment ran out and a much better job because, damn it, when the magic has to work, it has to work. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is one of the things that um, was one of the strategies that, and, and, and a blog post that you wrote about is that sometimes volume is the best strategy, like to uh, use the shotgun approach, not, not just uh, here's this one particular thing I want. No, not at no. all. I mean, I, I can't, well, I, I agreed, and that's sort of, this has been one of the learnings from Scholing for me is that I, one, I don't know my own damn life. Um, I do, there is no way in hell several years ago I would have pictured that this is what it looks like. Uh, and also, I, none of the results ever come through, unless they're really bad, none of them ever come through the way you want them to. So why, are we, why would you ask for specific things? Why aren't we just nudging, uh, nudging towards the approximate area <laughs> We're supposed to be, and then react when we get there, and uh, and that um, that again, I think, is something that, uh, say, for instance, folk magic could do better because it is sort of a um, light in a venna, say the prayer, see what happens. And I think if you could sort of break that down into individual pieces and make it seven different prayers, or or what have you, I don't think it's exclusively a sigil-based thing, but. Um, 
Well, it, it's, it is the best strategy. If, if you're going for, say, five targets, it means you've actually broken down your goal into more manageable pieces than, um, yeah, than from here, from this room at 1.30 in the morning in London, like a movie deal in L.A. Um, I can light a candle for that, or I can, or I'm better off, you know, seeing what happens 150 sigils later. Well, that also means that you... That implies something. That implies that you at least sort of have a tangible on-the-ground plan uh, to get there. Yeah, and I would say the other half of being very good at magic, which I'm not, but this is what I'm working on, but the other half of being very good at magic is knowing when not to use it. And you have more opportunities to not use magic if you have a whole bunch of little goals that you're enchanting for, somewhat counterintuitively, but there it is, because you can kind of... throw yourself into a, into a changed probability environment and go, oh, okay, I'm going to go left instead of right. I thought I was going to go right. And it's that you have more opportunities to not use magic and just kind of see where things are going if you break it up into different pieces. And I think that's the skill. That's that kind of, I know everyone's working towards it, but that's where the integration comes in, um, where, where the rubber hits the road, where your actual practice of magic gets incorporated into your daily life. And, because my, yeah, and that's that's where... Um, that's, I think, why for me, because the biggest thing that's happened, it is for most people, but the biggest thing that's happened for me, I guess, in the last four years has been such a change in career landscape that that's been my laboratory for experimenting with these things. And, and that's um, one of the another blog posts you mentioned is that is you're talking about the um, I think you use the terms the apocalyptic job market or I, I don't think that was the exact phrase, but was pretty close to the phrase where you're talking about the new rules in the post-apocalyptic or the apocalyptic job market where there might not be any certainty anymore. Well, they're just flat out, isn't it? It's worse than certainty. It's it's beyond Thunderdome. Um, the, the whole thing is terrible. Uh, and so this is where I think that the kind of, you know, brush your hair, put on a tie... Uh, it doesn't really... I, I was in a meeting this morning. Um, uh, you know Google gets 2 million resumes a year? I can believe that. Um, that, And obviously that's the most desirous company to work for in the world at the moment, but uh, this, is the, this is the new normal. The new normal is, it's not... <laughs> yeah, it's not put on a tie and brush your hair. It's, you know, be at the same coffee shop as the, as the head of HR. It's, it's mm-hmm. weird. It packs. It is... Um, well, not terrorism, but, but it's ontological. Um, it's ontological spy games, basically. That's how. That's what the rules are. That's what I mean by it's completely feral, uh, and that that presents a lot of challenges, especially if, if people are in markets that aren't as complex or chaotic, as in if they're not in larger cities where more crazy stuff can happen, which gives you more opportunity for, I suppose, spy games uh, for it to work. Because otherwise. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know what, uh, I just feel so, um, what's the word, my heart goes out, I, I guess, to basically all of us, but the idea that the rules of the game have been changed, uh, and after we were all <laughs> bending over backwards to play nicely, uh, but isn't the, the quicker people realize that and, and basically hack, um, the better off they're going to be if they're in the unfortunate situation of redundancy or they need a new job or, or whatever it happens to be. Well, I hate to say it, you know, not to sound cliche, 
because people have said for many years, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It seems like in times like these, as you're pointing out, social engineering is becoming the game you need to play as opposed to worrying about your credentials, experience. You know, credentials, experience, and education are always important factors, but now you have to find ways to work your way into the crowd, to know the right people. Well, exactly, because um, everyone, like everyone who is applying for the sort of senior money <coughs> at, at Google or Apple has an MBA. So the idea that you can go to some also brand university, get an MBA and go, right, that's me sorted for life. I'll never, I'll never want for another job. Uh, the uh, having a credential uh, is is something you need to start rather than something you need to finish, which right. is good because in, in terms of the, the cost of them, the bottom is falling out of the market. The fact that everyone has them means you don't, unless you're talking about Ivy Leagues, people aren't necessarily comparing where you got your um, your certification or your postgrad certificate or whatever it happens to be from. And they, you can get them for like a few hundred dollars or if you live in Europe you can move to Sweden where they're free you know uh, you can you can do it all the way up to PhD and it costs nothing <laughs> so where you get them from yeah is that but that again comes back to the hack if, if you if you perceive personally that a lack of a credential is, is somehow getting in your way then get one get one online from a reputable place or, or what have you don't like go oh well I guess I won't have that job it's off to McDonald's for me um, hack well I have, I have to say I, I hacked my magic way to work at a university that was the best in Ohio that I can get those credentials for nice. free <laughs> but that wasn't done through sigil magic <laughs> well I don't I don't I did a physics degree that didn't even do, uh, uh, didn't even have exams because it was run by a bunch of old Sydney documentary hippies. So I have this degree in effectively nothing, um, and I don't think anyone. I think they've looked at it to see under the education. Yes, he went to university, but I'd, uh, beyond that, there's no yeah. way what I what my degree is in. I mean, I loved it, but there's no way what my degree is in at all remotely matches, you know, doing ad trading in five European markets sort of 12 years later it doesn't they, they don't they don't connect so that's again it's a hack if you think if you if you need to put something on there put something on there and if you can't afford to pay for it get find one of the cheaper ones which is kind of a, a hard thing because you know that's another rule that's been broken recently you know that people think okay you go get a certain degree especially in like uh, professional degree, and that's that's what you're going to do. But that's not at all true anymore. You know? No, it, it's it's especially in the U.S. where the, the cost of textbooks and and um, tertiary education has just grown at like orders of magnitude more than inflation or anything else. And then it's sort of what is it now the biggest source of debt in the well private debt in the country? It's madness. And I think people like people have seen the man behind the curtain this this is a this is a scam it, it is built this way to keep uh, to keep people basically poor so they can uh, you know you end up restricting wages as a result of it people don't move around as much and i think people have realized hang on if i'm going to come out of an arts degree a hundred grand in debt and then get at the back of a 300 person queue for a um for an office admin position why, why am i a hundred grand in debt to do this and uh, and that's where this is a big and important change about how we how we approach 
education and how we approach uh, even just upskilling ourselves. I would, if people don't have a degree but they have a, um, a corporate uh, experience, well, if they have corporate experience on their resume and they're job seeking, I would do something better than like adding an arts degree to it. I would go out there and get a proper project management certificate and all these other kind of actual credentials rather than a degree. Uh, because those things are um, officially recognized, they're much cheaper, they're shorter, um, they're real world, and they set you apart. So th there are things like that that people, I think, uh, need to look at. That will potentially be the next thing I sort of stack onto my resume. I, I've done the Prince 2 course, I just haven't set the exams. And Prince 2 is our, I don't know what it's called in the US, but that's sort of the official um, qualification um, title for project management in the UK. So um, I would just start tacking things like that onto a resume, for example. Well, especially if you could use the sigils to convince your boss to pay for them. Yeah, uh, because you're not going to, this is the thing I've sort of alluded to earlier. But one, a small pay rise doesn't tend to make, people overestimate how happy a small pay rise is going to make them. Uh, they think, oh, I really, I'm underpaid, I really need this. But then you get an extra $40 a month. Uh, in your pay packet, it's not. I mean, that is helpful, but it's not the same as people just aren't giving out pay rises anymore. Um, but you can renegotiate and say, "Fine, if we don't have the opportunity for pay rises, um, let's talk about professional development. I want to go on a presentations course. I want. Uh, I want to do a short course in negotiation. I want to do whatever it happens to be. Get them to do that because there will usually be, if not actual cash money allocated for this, uh, an HR department whose job. They're waiting for people to come and say this to them. Come and say to them, please help me with my career. That's what they're there for. They're not just there when, you know, there's a sexual harassment claim or whatever. Um, and I think that is that's the next step as well, is to is to use your career to invest in yourself. You know, it that's a funny game to play, get the training from the job you currently have so that you can go get a better job. In fact, I had a manager go six years ago tell me my job is to make you a better electrician so you you can go leave this place and get a better job um, did he say this in in the job interview or was this sort of oh, later this this was a job that I had for five years who you know the guy that I was working under apprenticing under told me yeah my goal is to make you a better electrician so you can leave this place and get a better job than what you currently have well good <laughs> This, I mean, workplaces are getting quite horizontal at the moment. I report into um, the chief marketing officer, so I there's nowhere there's no career progression in a startup. The, the, we have maybe 180 people in the business. So my next job, even though I really enjoy where I work, my next job by definition is outside of this company, and I think that's that is happening more and more as well. You, you, there are, and in fact, you don't really want to be in them, but the large hierarchical companies. Um, Nokia, um, the rest of them, these sort of giant edifices uh, are collapsing. And so to be in this sort of middle management rungs and to spend every couple of years going up the next level and up the next level uh, is a dangerous game if you're not embezzling or something because they, they, they rip out entire levels of that um, every six months. So I, I, that's a very good thing that your um, former boss said, and it's a good way of seeing things um, if you invest in yourself because your your next job doesn't yeah, um, there's more to to office politics than inter-office politics. I guess is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, and and to pull it full circle, I mean, you know, this is where, you know, even in a, well, I mean, it's possible to get both a raise and to get the professional development, but if you're if you're using the kind of techniques you were describing earlier with the shoaling, you could have, you know, done sigils for all of the above things and trying to invest in yourself that way. Oh, agreed. Agreed. Um, and I would split the professional development into five or six different things, including uh, conference opportunities, um, representing companies in professional organizations, all that kind of stuff, because you never know how these things all, all sort of plug together. Um, but I agree. And that's where, uh, that's where I think it, with such a disrupted economy, um, an almost decentralized approach rather than kind of um, trying to attract the attention of some sort of multi-dimensional being who is only sporadically favorable towards you and getting them to directly intervene in in your promotion ah I, I don't know I, that uh, that seems to me a riskier game yeah I mean one of the things is it only takes one person to dislike you to end your um, tenure at a company if you're not using such a decentralized method well I, I just meant um, kind of if if you're if you're bothering a particular god with this all the time, they're 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 like us but worse. You know, <laughs> they sometimes they feel like helping, other times they don't. And uh, I'm not prepared to kind of I guess outsource something that's already capricious, which is um, job, career man. stability, to something even more capricious. So I prefer a decentralized approach and having a, a whole bunch of different things working at once. Gordon White, the left hand path magician. <laughs> it's really not that left-hand path. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, left-hand path magicians would come on here and be like, ah, like killed your boss, yeah, or something. Well, I don't know I'm if they're looking not at it more way. like the perspective of I'm not going to beg a god <laughs> to do what I can do myself. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe that came out. Wrong. Did, you, did you guys watch the? Um, it's uh, it's old now. The um, HBO series Rome. I, I have, missed it. I have and to I, admit, I I don't even have television. Okay, well, it, it, I'm sure secondhand the DVDs are like two bucks now. It's it's worth it. But um, one of the characters in that um, sort of said, basically admonishing her daughter, saying, "Look at you bothering the gods for every little thing, uh, like they care." And it's I think it's a, in some ways, it's a healthy attitude. Um, why? Why these things? It is like it's poking a bear. So you're poking a bear to say, "Please let me get a seat on the bus tonight." Please let the blah 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 blah. Um, come on, <laughs> no, no. poke the bear when you need a bear. Um, but I don't. I don't need a bear in the workplace. Exactly. Now, now one of the things that, as we're talking about the changing environment and the the changing workplace environment, we also a little bit. In the few minutes we have remaining, we talk about the, well, the changing publishing environment and how that affects us. And one of the things that we kind of joked about before we started the show is that uh, uh, you joked about a business book that someone, one, one of your colleagues has written. And when they did the actual numbers on how much money they made on that business book, it came out to less than minimum wage. 
Yeah, this was, uh, it wasn't a colleague, it was um, Penelope Trunk, but she, she basically worked out that the number of hours you put into even a successful book, so let's just put aside all occult publishing, uh, uh, even a successful book, at the end of the year, um, the hours you put into it versus the money you get back at the end, uh, it, it works out to essentially being slightly under a minimum wage job, uh, which is fine. Like people can, uh, people tend to, they either have a book in them or they don't, which is actually um, what we were saying beforehand. It's not that I don't want to write a book. It's just I don't have anything to say at the moment that's book-shaped. Uh, and, that, I mean, that may change, but uh, at the moment, um, blogging blogging suits me. And that, I think, is where, if you were to look at the macro changes in publishing, um, two things are essentially happening. Um, the first is that physical formats like books have only ever been, and, and sort of, and uh, I guess themed bookstores, be they travel or occult or whatever, have been sort of uh, proxy for um, shared audience interest. But you don't need that anymore because you have uh, the capacity to to grow an audience for your message uh, without it. So you to kind of decouple the idea of audiences used to be built around books. When I worked in magazines, I would refer to them, particularly women's magazines, uh, as pre-internet social networks, because this was a place where people would share stories and recipes and and, and what have you, and they'd be shared around a group of women in a country for um, each week, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and that that the requirement of a physical format has. Uh, has fallen away from that because obviously you can build an audience around your message without it. The other thing that's happened, and this is what we're talking about with regards to Harry Potter, um, and Seth Godin says this, publishing is essentially venture capital. That's what it is. You're, you're, um, and that, that is what the move is, that is what traditional publishing is moving towards, which is spending a little bit on 20 gambles hoping to find a Harry Potter because the other 19 won't make money. So it's just like a Silicon Valley startup um, investing in 20 small amounts of money in, say, 20 different Twitters, hoping one of them will become Twitter, um, but losing money on the other 19. Because that is that is the reality of uh, essentially giving someone a platform that hasn't built an audience. Uh, and that's fine, because when they do pay off, um, Fifty Shades of Grey, Harry Potter, what have you, everyone can go and buy an island. But um, it's the, the idea that it's an actual business with kind of, uh, th this is the thing, and the movie industry had the same uh, belief in its own expertise, which was, if you restrict, um, I guess, the channels towards audience, you have an audience starved for, for a product. So you could be the worst movie executive in the history of Hollywood, and all your films would make money. Because prior to, say, television, the only way people could see movie pictures was to go and see your movie. So you thought you were amazing. You thought, look at me, look at me picking all these incredible movies. Once you introduce competition into it, you actually kind of start to see, hang on a minute, no you're not, you were just the person sitting at the door clipping the ticket. And I think publishing has, uh, I love periodically reading the defenses from say agents or whatever about the, the value they add um, to a business. And, they, and some of them do because there are actually talented people there. But the notion that, I mean Harry Potter was passed on Fifty Shades of Grey is the fastest selling book ever in the history of the English language. Uh, where people, where were the people who were shepherding this to, to a grateful audience? And that is that we kind of have two things happening at once, which is, again, um, you can see behind the curtain that really no one is in control. It is a gamble. It is, it's VC funding. Uh, and on the other side of it, this idea that an audience 
uh, a physical object is required to build an audience around has fallen away. And, and I should, for the people listening who uh, think they're going to make uh, lots of money being a rich occult superstar, it's probably a lot worse numbers even for occultists than the Harry Potter example. <laughs> well, sure. And um, this is the thing. If you, if you go into it open-eyed and saying, listen, I will actually make zero money. <laughs> I assume you make zero money from um, writing something in the occult space. Then the need for you to be in book form isn't there anymore. Because if you're not going to make money from it, why don't you not make money from a blog? Does that make sense? So you no longer need um, the the book isn't the thing that you don't make money off. If you if the money you make is is close enough to zero, a blog is less work, and so you can devote the rest of your time to doing something else that does make money, and then everybody wins. You're you're publishing in the occult, and you have money. Well, what about well? I, I can't argue with that logic because your numbers are right on the money. I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I have made close to I haven't made close to zero I've made a little bit more than zero but I'm not flying around in jets for my occult uh, publishing so let's put it that way well, and I think you had the right perspective you wrote a book because you felt you had something to say which is this is what if, if you have a book in you if you have something to say that is book shaped, shaped then say it say it say it say it um, I want more people to do. I want more people to be um, doing independent ebook publishing, and I want, um, especially as the occult suits things like chapbooks and and kind of small, small publications built around a specific saint or, or whatever it happens to be. These things are great, and we should have more of them. And they should be a dollar ninety seven, uh, and you get to keep a big chunk of that money. And and then there you are. You're published. You've said something book shaped, uh, and as yeah, I. I'm, I'm oddly enough, even though I know there's no money in it, I want more people to be publishing occult books. <laughs> well, there you go. So get out there and publish more occult books. With the knowledge, though, you better have something to say, and you might not be a rich superstar after you say it. So there you go. You must be, um, Andrea, you must be, like, happy that whatever money came out of you, go, my book is out there, this is what I have to say, I'm glad it's in the world. Uh... Well, let's be honest. I met my significant other because I published the book. Uh, I met Jason because I published a book, and I've met a lot of good, uh, good amount of my friends that have read the book, and I met them through the book. And that was exactly the intent that I went into publishing the book. Brilliant. So, I went into I I um, launched the blog because I wanted to talk to people. Uh, and specifically learn from them, but I wanted to talk to people who were practicing magic. And um, so in terms of, I guess, in that bullshit, not paid in actual money way, I consider my return on investment from the blog to be astoundingly positive because I have met so many great people and learned so many amazing things from this sort of ongoing process. And I, I, just, and I mean that. It sounds like a terrible Miss America acceptance speech. But uh, I really like had to God be that that was why I went into doing the blogging and what I get the most out of it. No, I mean, uh, I, I didn't really... I didn't really... I sort of helped manage occult stores and I knew what the margins were you know when I wrote the book and um, I didn't have the money intention per se so 
Yeah. I had much more of a social intention. Uh, and it just so happened that when I put that, um, started to have the intention that I was going to actually write, publish a book before I trashed it the first time and then started from scratch a second time, um, uh, that s somebody came to me who was already published by Llewellyn. That was actually um, Raven Digitalis came to me and said, Llewellyn's looking for a real book on chaos magic. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And he, they said they would prefer it not to be a beginner's book. And I said, well, I can do that. Mm -hmm. So it just fell in line. I mean, and my intention really was mainly to get it out there so I could uh, meet people and elevate kind of, uh, really kind of elevate the practical magic techniques out there so people would actually so we could have these kind of discussions which do not happen at most conventions and then like and festivals in the states you don't have practical magical uh conversations but i can say since i've published my book i have had more of those conversations by like tenfold hmm and is that, do you think, because people come up to you and uh, want to talk specific practical magic stuff, or do you just think there's been a, a general shift um, towards it, that it, this is in some ineffable way picked up on a zeitgeist? I don't know. That that sounds like I caused a hurricane in, in, in New Orleans, if I say it. It changed the zeitgeist by, you know... I said picked up <laughs> on a zeitgeist, like an antenna. <laughs> well, I might have picked up on it, but there... Uh, certainly has been a backlash against the, uh, I don't want to say fluffy in a bad way, but certainly more and more people are kind of like, there's got to be more to it than, um, than just the lack of results, the, the kind of fluffy, uh, non-consequential rituals that often happen. And I'm sure you know what I mean by that. And, and I'm sure yeah. Jason does too. Yeah. Well, you know, let, let's be honest. There's a hundred and one, there's probably a thousand Wicca 101 Let's Worship the Goddess and Sing Kumbaya books that we really just don't need if we want to get practical results. True. Well, yeah, but those books have their place. It just, that's not what I'm interested in. No, I, I, I would say that. I would also say, um, because it's the weirdest thing, um, it, People will get spectacular results from doing more or less anything. And I've seen people who uh, have gone down a very love and light path and just because of whatever changes that wrought within them, <laughs> sort of double their wealth, find their husband, blah, blah, and they're not actually out there um, sort of pointing their wands at the at the thunder sky. It's um, But something something clicks with them and they I don't know whether they become a true self or, or whatever it happens to be but at the end of this book with lots of you know I don't know unicorn path working um, they've, they've had um, I guess measurable improvements to their life and that's where I sort of go mm, like I'm, I'm with Andrea like it's not it's, it's just not my jam but I can see that some people come out the other end of it pretty good <laughs> yeah what, what am I going to talk I mean what am I going to talk? I'm a Reiki master. I got all these new age techniques that I like. So, you know, you know, but then I, at least I, you know, I, I'm a voodoo priest too, but so I got 
some stuff that makes people cringe, but you know, but I got them because I like them, and I don't really care, but it is actually, and I think about this for the larger festivals, I haven't been to any of the US ones, but it is an odd group of people, because you're essentially lassoing people who have just wildly different ways of seeing the world, based on this one almost arbitrary um, shared connection, which is that the idea that everyone at this in this building believes that if they wave their hands around a little bit, they will make more money at work. Because uh, that is odd, obviously, but it's not. Like, the, the range of people from um, up at the sort of um, wearing sunglasses inside Chaos Magic uh, over here and and the people at the other end with their um, Wiccan reeds, this is very, very far apart, kind of, in terms of how they see the world. Are there people who objectively believe, which is fine, whatever, like in the, in the multiple reality of different gods? And then there are people who are essentially kind of reading a little bit too much into popular science and building their world around that. And these people are all in the one building. It's bizarre. We, we just have this almost assumption that everyone, like we will, we will one day uh, all see the world in the one way. Like we'll all like, oh, what we need is more organizations or we need to continue to bother um, uh, government and policymakers to make sure that we get to sit on UN councils and all this. But who, who are you representing? Who, 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 how do you represent magic at, at a council? When it is, it, it doesn't, it doesn't actually sit in, in one spot. You can't make any cohesive, or uh, rather you can't make any universal statements about it beyond everyone in this room thinks waving their hands around might cause them to make more money at work. Well, and then there's probably some people there who don't. They're just there for the company. Yeah. <laughs> True. Or the yeah. drugs, as yeah, it were. Exactly. Some people are just there for the drugs, too. So that's how it is, I mean, in a festival. I mean... But, I, I mean, I like that, that sort of... Um, I mean, there was, there was something of a tirade about it. Uh, people getting upset about um, policy changes for um, online marketplaces uh, to do with um, selling magical stuff. But it's it's just not where we belong you can't actually how are you going to like what letter are you going to get us all to sign to send to ebay that that's cohesive does that like it's not a yeah well we we can't even agree among ourselves on whether or not we should be allowed to do this i mean clearly but, one like, tradition african traditional religion yes we must get paid for the work we do but then a Wiccan might come back and say, no, you can't. So it's like, what are you going to do? Well, and, and this is, I think, where uh, there's uh, not a lack of understanding, but a, a, an almost a dissonance when it comes to talking about the occult world. It's not different shades of Protestant Christianity. It is like putting a hiking boot and a fish and, uh, and an electric car in, in, in a room and getting them to agree on something. They're, they're just different things. And, and that's where we, we, we kind of want to be this kind of rainbow of Protestant Christianity difference, but we're not. It, 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 these things are just wildly different. And that, that fascinates me that, yeah, there's this kind of attempt to amalgamate us into, into I don't know, a larger cohesive voice, but I would, um, I would push back on that. Well, I mean, I think that, I mean, we could get into a whole... Another hour discussion on the sociology of why that's particularly necessary in the states, and um, one need only look at the rhetoric flying around 
in uh, certain presidential campaigns to realize that's probably true. It, it probably is needed in a sort of self-defense sort of uh, <laughs> way um, uh, because of the kind of rhetoric that's flying around. And then the other thing is that, well, people want to belong to something larger than themselves. No, I, and I definitely, I get that. I just don't, I, I think this sort of drive to universalism, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I'm seeing that. Uh, attempting to get consensus opinions on on eBay or transgender or, or what have you, it's, it's bizarre because these are people who fundamentally, well, it's a, it is an arbitrary collection of people. If you were to just kind of lock the doors of a restaurant somewhere and say, right, all of you agree on transgender, that's the same? It is pretty much the same. Uh, in fact, you have, com you have people worshipping gods that historically probably would have thought. I mean... Yeah, I, I, but that's... And, it's actually what I like about it. Again, why why I did this blog and why, you know, it, I take all comers and why my um, Google reader is extremely promiscuous in in where it gets its uh, its meat um, because I I like it all. I'm just surprised that um, every episodically we seem to want to agree on stuff and I'm, I'm I don't need that. Tell them to stop. Don't yeah. agree with you. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's. Already at the 55 mark, how can people reach you, Gordon, if they want to reach uh, out to you more? Well, yes. Well, I um, I haven't published a book in the last 55 minutes, so I'm going to go runesoup.com. <laughs> uh, obviously, that's where I am. Um, otherwise, um, Twitter uh, is where um, I spend a lot of my time. Uh, Gordon underscore white, G-O-R-D-O-N underscore W-H-I-T-E. But honestly, um, the blog is where it's at for, for me. Um, I, I read every comment. Uh, I, I get, actually, I should say this, um, I do try to get to every email. Um, la, 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 I'm a little bit behind, so um, um, I will ultimately get to it. But um, if, you, if you want like a, an immediate answer, annoy me on Twitter. But otherwise, please do email and, uh, and get in touch via the blog. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I do hope to have you come back because it flew by. It was like two minutes and then we're done. All right. Well, next time we do 2 a.m. your time and whatever early morning or something it is for me. Now, that's fine. You know, you catch me at 2 a.m. and Jason at 2 a.m. It's probably post-ritual and probably we'll be doing a drunk show at that point, that's, right? That's <laughs> I don't remember the last time I was sober and up at 2 a.m. It's really weird. Isn't it? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know. I mean, 2 a.m. wasn't that long ago, but I was, yeah, I was not in a, in a podcasting way. There you go. Now well, we have seriously, it. Gordon, thank you much, and try to enjoy your day tomorrow. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.